But after 11 chapters of Romans of deep theology, the sound doctrine that he's been presenting, the profound truth, the Apostle Paul drops to his knees in worship and prays to God. For 11 chapters, Paul has been sharing the power of the gospel. Remember that in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, is the power of God for salvation. And step by step, he has shown God's way of putting sinners right with himself. How Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. How we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And how the Christian life is lived not under the law, but by the Spirit. And as we saw in chapter 11, of course, how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and the Gentiles into his kingdom. And as John Stott puts it, he says, We have looked beyond the horizon of time and eternity. Now we stop out of mental breath. Analysis and argument must give way to adoration. And he continues, like a traveler who has reached the summit of an alpine ascent, wrote F.I. Godet of Switzerland. The Apostle Paul looks out from this ascent and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illumine them. And they're spread all around an immense horizon which the eye commands. Oh, the unfathomable wealth of God's infinite knowledge and unlimited wisdom. Struck by what he has been writing about God and his way, Paul burst into a crescendo of praise, and he expresses a doxology. The word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory, glory. Logos is the other part, Dox, doxa logos, doxology, a word, a word, a verbal word of glory. A doxology is literally an expression of praise to God. It's a verbal praise and adoration that glorifies God. So look at how Paul ends the first 11 chapters of Romans, verse 11, or, or chapter 11, verse 36 again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory, the doxa, forever. Amen. And one of the things that we need to note here, and it's really important, is that theology, theology, Theos, God, Logos, word again, what we believe about God, that theology, what we believe about God, and doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. Should never be separated. We should never separate our theology, what we believe about God, who he is, what he has done, his nature, his attributes, his character. We should never separate that from doxology, our worship and praise of him. Because on the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. Put simply, it's impossible to worship an unknown God. To worship a God we don't know very much about. To worship a God that is vaguely familiar to us. We cannot worship a God that we don't know very well. We worship God for who he is, his attributes, for what he has done, his works. And all of worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and in Scripture. All of worship is a response to what we know of God and what we see of God and what God reveals to us in his word, his written word and the living word, Jesus Christ. 
And worship is and praise arise out of who God is and what he has done as shown to us in his word. And so it's the tremendous truths that Paul has been expounding in Romans chapter 1 through 11, which provoked Paul's outburst of praise. The worship of God is evoked, it is informed, is inspired by the vision of God. And worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Worshiping a God who is not the true and living God. Worshiping a God who is not the one who is revealed to us in Scripture. And so this really does show us the indispensable place of Scripture in both public worship and private devotion. How Scripture informs us, how it invokes us, how it inspires to worship the God. It, our God, it gives us the content of our worship. What we sing, what we say, what we pray should flow from a proper biblical understanding of who God is and what he has done and what he has promised in his word. Thus, it is the word of God which calls forth the worship of God. There can be no doxology without theology. On the other hand, there'd be no theology without doxology. There's something fundamentally flawed when you just take a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate subject for cool, critical, detached observation and evaluation. No, the knowledge of God always leads us to worship, as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before God in adoration. But what the Apostle Paul shows us in Romans is, that the full wonder, the full wonder of God's glorious wisdom and power, the full wonder of all that God is and what he does, is really beyond human understanding, beyond our theology, in a sense. The full wonder of God's glorious wisdom and power staggers even the most mature Christian mind, and it, it staggered the mind of Paul himself. God's wisdom is inscrutable. It's unfathomable to mere humans. And it is here where we find the matters of what we could call unending praise. Where theology stops because we can't understand it, but praise is increased and the exaltation of God is even greater. Where our theology does inform and inspire our worship, there's a place where our theology ends, as it were, because God's wisdom is unfathomable. Where doxology soars and ascends, where theology ends. Where reasoning and understanding, as one person put it, reasoning and understanding loses its legs and the heart soars on eagle's wings. For here the seeking of the mind, having reached its limits, gives way to the adoration of the heart and the spirit. It was J.B. Phillips who said, if God were small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Right? He wrote that in his book, Your God is Too Small. So before moving on in his letter to the Romans to the practical conclusions, how then do we put all of this into practice and live the Christian life, and all which flow from a grand, the grand and distinct doctrines of the gospel, the Apostle Paul pauses to marvel at the ground of which he has trekked. And looking back upon the whole, in astonishment and adoration and admiration, he must exalt his sovereign God.
God is worthy to be praised. For God knows what he's doing, even when we don't. God is in control of all of history, even when we don't get it. Even when we don't understand it. And so Paul, therefore, falls down before God and worships by bursting into a marvelous doxology. His praise is informed by Scripture. It's full of Old Testament phraseology. And for the umpteenth time in in these three chapters, he quotes the Old Testament again and uses that Old Testament phraseology. But yet in his own expression of humble wonder and dependence, as he glorifies God for his wisdom, his goodness, his sovereignty, there are few passages that can be compared in Scripture with this pouring forth of inspiring tribute to God for all the wonders, all the glories of his divine dealings with man. So Paul pauses to celebrate the wonder of God's greatness. Verse 33 of Romans chapter 11 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In this 33rd verse, Paul tells us, first of all, that God is too deep for you to figure out. I I was going to use the word we there, God is too deep for we to figure it out, but I think we need to personalize at this point. God is too deep for you to figure out, and then he tells you that God is too high. For you to figure out. First of all, God is too deep for you to figure out. He burst out, oh, the depths, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And the main idea here, the governing thought of this is that God is deep. God is deep. Now, it's also true that the truth of God is shallow enough for a child to drink from it without the fear of drowning that even a child can come to the truth of God's word and partake of that in that nourishing water of God's word without, without drowning. But it's so deep that scholars can dive into it and never reach the bottom, never get there. It's like the depths of the ocean. The deeper you go into the ocean, the darker the water becomes. It becomes dark, and in fact, at one point, it becomes absolutely darkness. I can't even imagine what that is, because we don't understand that. Because when we close our eyes, we still see, don't you see stuff and stuff in front of your eyes and those kind of things, or you're in darkness because of the way our eyes work, but there's a place where the water is absolutely darkest, and uh, and there's, there's pressure. The deeper you go, there, there's the more pressure. There's the pressure-filled depth where no human can survive. No human can survive down there. And that, in our analogy, is the breaking point where God resides. Where God resides. Paul says that God's riches are deep. So what are God's riches? God's riches are basically all that God has. And what does God have? God has everything. Everything belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. The world and those who dwell in, therein. God, God owns everything. Everything that he has created, he owns. And so his, his riches are the wealth in that part, in, in that sense. And as you know, in Philippians uh, 4.19, it says, And my God will supply all your needs according to what? 
his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So all that is, all is in Christ Jesus. Those are the riches. And, and Paul's already written of God's wealth. In, in verse 4 of Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks of the riches of God's kindness, the riches of God's tolerance, the riches of his, his patience. And it is these riches, Paul says, that lead a sinner to repentance. Uh, God is immeasurably tolerant and patient. Immeasurably. You can't. And then I put a word in here. I don't know if I can say it because on Sunday morning I get a little tongue-tied. But God is inestimably kind. In other words, you can't, you can't estimate it. You can't calculate it. His kindness has, has no limits. His patience and tolerance have, have no limits. And Peter wrote of this. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness. I count slowness all the time, every time I go into a grocery store, every time I get in a line, every time I go to McDonald's, to the, the window. Jan can tell you about my patience and hers there. But God has no limits on this. Why? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So when you think of what God might have had to put up with in bringing you to Christ... Or you think about what God might be putting up with now <laughs> as you're in Christ. You might want just to pause and give him thanks because he is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Then there's also God's wisdom and knowledge, which is deep. Paul marvels, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. John MacArthur paraphrases it this way. Oh, the depth, deep, inexhaustible, unfathomable fullness, inconceivable profundity, unthinkable thoughts. <laughs> Put all that together. As somebody said, it's impossible to unscrew the inscrutable. <laughs> God is in, his ways are inscrutable. You just can't, you can't figure it out. In Psalm 92.5, the psalmist says to the Lord, Your thoughts are very deep. Your thoughts are very deep. Seems like a simple, simple thought. Your thoughts are very deep. But you don't go into God's thoughts very far into the depths before you get the bends. Your thoughts are very deep. So turn over to Psalm 139th Psalm. Psalm 139 at the first verse. The 139th Psalm is a psalm about God's omnipresence and his omniscience. God's omnipresence. We recognize that, that God is everywhere. He, he's everywhere at the same time. He's present everywhere. David said, where can I go from thy presence? Even if I descend into Sheol, you. That's all it says in the Hebrew. You, God. And we usually translate it, thou art there, but you, if I go there, if I send to the highest place, you, God. God is everywhere. And then God's omniscience. He knows everything. Everything. And I don't know much, and I'm only here in one place, and it's a good reminder that God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. And so verse 1 of the 139th Psalm says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. 
You scrutinize my path and my lie down. The word translated scrutinize there literally means to, to, uh, to winnow. It's the idea of winnowing wheat, sifting out. You, you scrutinize, you, you sift out my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot obtain it. God's knowledge is unfathomable. I, I can't reach it. I can't attain it. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, only the Spirit of God can plumb the depths of the mind of God. Only God's Spirit, in other words, God himself, can, can know the depths of God's mind. And it's no wonder that Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, wisdom is the application of fact. Knowledge is the fact. Knowledge is the facts. Wisdom is the application of that. In other words, God knows everything, and he applies it perfectly. He has an infinite capacity to know and an infinite capacity to apply the knowledge. And everything works out according to his, his plan. Now, what Paul is saying in Romans is that what is incomprehensible is not what has not been revealed. Too many negatives? <laughs> Let me put it this way. What Paul says is incomprehensible is not referring to what is hidden or can't be known. It's not something that God's incomprehensible because he's got all this hidden stuff over here and he probably has all kinds of hidden stuff, but Paul's not referring to the hidden stuff. Paul is referring to what is incomprehensible is that which has already been revealed. Paul is saying all the stuff he has written is revealed to him by God in Romans and is incomprehensible. That is the thing that throws him. Paul is not thrown by the things that he doesn't know about God. It's the things that are revealed, that have a depth to it, that if you follow it long enough, you, you can't reach it. So the wonder and marvel in his mind is not the wonder of what is not revealed, but it's in, the inconceivable wonder of what God has revealed. Or like Mark Twain said one time, it isn't the things that I know that bother me, it's the things I do know. <laughs> and, and that's what Paul is saying here. And so the doxology rises out of the reality that, and even looking at what God has revealed in the plan of God, Paul is absolutely overwhelmed with the mind of God. How that God could pull it off. And how that God can make it all happen. And he's overwhelmed and trying to plumb the depths of all of God's thinking and all of God's planning and Paul has been giving for 11 chapters great examples of the infinite, incomprehensible knowledge and wisdom of God. And the whole scheme of salvation is so grandiose, so profound, so deep, so filled with wonder that he's absolutely overwhelmed by it. God is too deep for you to figure out. And he says God is too high for you to figure out. Verse 33 again. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. 
God is too high for you to figure out. And that is because, first of all, God's judgments are unsearchable. How unsearchable are his judgments? This explanation declares that God, who is infinitely deep, is also transcendently high. Can't be reached, can't be attained. We read that last week in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. It's good to hear it again. For my ways, or my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, or I keep getting the pronouns turned around. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's judgments are unsearchable. Now, the word judgments in the Bible is often used as a judicial term to refer to the condemnation and punishment of sin. But here in the context, the judgments of God are used in a broader sense. It refers to God's decrees, God's decisions. God makes a judgment about something and he decrees something, or, or he makes a decision, as it were, and he, and he makes and he decrees that. Uh, in the ancient world, the ruler was also the judge. There was no separation of powers in, in the ancient world. Whoever the king was, he was also the judge. He had the final authority. His, and so it is with God, except here, God's judgments are, are unsearchable. Isaiah 40, 28 asks, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, his understanding it is, is inscrutable. You can't unscrew the inscrutable. And also you can't figure it out because God's ways are unfathomable. They're unfathomable. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God's ways are unfathomable. And there's really a great word picture here in the Hebrew. Literally it says that God's paths are untraceable. God's paths are untraceable. Uh, the metaphor comes from the idea of the hunter who goes out and tracks an animal. And he sees the footprints of the animal, whatever he's tracking. And, and the hunter would track the animal and lose the path. So if you try to follow what God is doing, you're going to lose the path. Because you can't track what God is doing. And you know how the psalmist said this in Psalm 77, 19? He says, Lord, your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. Every hunter knows that you lose the trail when you come to water, right? You can't track in the water. And animals, dogs, and others can't even follow the scent in the water. Ever try to follow footprints in the sea? That's what the psalmist is saying. God walks on the sea and you can't see his footprints. So we're left with faith at that point. We can't see where God is going. His way is untraceable. Try to follow him. God is too high for you to figure out because God's judgments are unsearchable and God's ways are unfathomable. Now Paul gets a little bit more personal. Quoting Isaiah, Paul clearly says to us, I like this one. God does not need your advice. <laughs> Amen. God does not need your advice. And the reason God does not need your advice is because 
No one knows the mind of the Lord. In verse 34 of Romans chapter 11, Paul quotes Isaiah. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his, his counselor? Turn over to the prophet Isaiah. We read from chapter 40 in our call to worship today. Chapter 40, uh, going over to the 12th verse. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 40 is the great chapter in Scripture, one of the great chapters concerning the greatness of God. And the chapter ends with that promise that we read this morning. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. But I want you to see what Isaiah says about God in verse 12 of this 40th chapter. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of God's hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. And then verse 13 is the one that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 11. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn. Lebanon was talking about in that time the cedars of Lebanon, the great forested area. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Why would God go to somebody else to find counsel on how to run this world? <laughs> God is the sole designer of his wise plan. God is infinitely exalted above all his creation. He's totally independent. He doesn't need the supervision or direction of those whom he has created. No one knows his mind. No one gives him advice. It would be absurd to think that we could know the unsearchable mind of God sufficiently so that our advice would help him somehow. And it also says, Paul, that uh, no one has be been the Lord's counselor. Who became his counselor? Asked Paul and, and Isaiah. Who became God's counselor? It's really kind of humorous when you think about it, if not sarcastic. <laughs> Can you imagine the Almighty God dropping in on you and saying, you know, Bill, I've been struggling with this problem. I've wondered if you've got a few minutes that we could chat and talk about it. He might come to me and say, Bill, you've got this problem. Can we spend a few minutes and, and talk about it? But can you imagine the sovereign God meeting with some top advisors to lay out his plan for the ages? It's laughable. God doesn't need our counsel on anything. And yet how often... Do we give God advice? And how often do we tell him, you know, how he should run the world? Or we would say, 
yeah, if I was in charge, I would do this or whatever, you know. And, or God would just do things my way. This all makes sense to me. Do, just do it this way. And Boy, my life would be so much smoother, Lord, if you would just do things my way. If, if you would change my wife, you would change my kids, you would change my boss. And boy, our home would be just so much more peaceful. How often do we turn our prayers into complaints that imply that somehow we have some advice that God needs to listen to? Well, much of the same question was put to Job when the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And all the proud imaginations and things that Job had conceived and the agitation of his spirit were a moment in a moment humbled by dust. We see that over in Job chapter 38. The 38th chapter of Job, the first verse. Job's back before Psalms and Proverbs and those. Job chapter 38. By the time we get to the 38th chapter of Job, for 37 chapters, Job and his friends have been complaining and accusing and offering counsel. For why Job has so many problems, why he lost everything he had, including his kids. And, and all this, you know, it's just uh, each one takes their turn and, and they, they say, this, this is what God wants you to do. Job, you must have sinned. You must have done something for this to happen. Job, it must be your fault. And there's all this complaining and accusing and, and, and advice giving. And, and when God did show up, he didn't answer any of their questions. Not a single one. Never told Job why Job went through what he did. But the Lord did question Job. And for four chapters, the Lord questioned Job. And verse 1 of the 38th chapter, as it starts out these, these four chapters, gives us a pretty good idea of how it went for Job. Job chapter 38, verse 1. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this ignorant guy who's given all this advice? We could paraphrase it. Now, Job, gird up your loins like a man. Come and stand before me. You know, every kid knows what that's like to get in trouble when you say, come here. <laughs> come here. Stand right here. Okay? Stand right there. And I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, or who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it, or what were its basis on what were its basis sunk, or who laid its cornerstones, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so what is Job's response to this kind of questioning for four chapters? Turn over to the 42nd chapter of Job, chapter 42, verse 1. Job finally gets an opportunity to respond. Job finally knows the right answer about something. Chapter 42, verse 1. The Lord, or then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. The fullness and the extent of God's plans defy the penetration of the human mind. We do not need God to teach, or we do not need to teach God. We need him to teach us. We do not need to save God. We need him to save us. Who has been his counselor? Who has been God's counselor? Well, if you're like me, you've tried. Lord, I pray, uh, don't forget. And, and by the way, now there's nothing wrong with and we're supposed to take our needs and our concerns before God in petition and, and those kind of things. But, but don't go into prayer like thinking, you know, I, I really know what's best. You know, I've been, I've been thinking this out. I've been looking at what's going on in Washington, D.C. I really know what's best for this country. So now, God, would you please do that for me? I know what's best for this church, so will you, you please, you know, get it done? I really know what's best for me personally. No, prayer is coming to God not to get our will done in heaven, but to get heaven's will done on earth. <laughs> prayer is saying, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want to do in our church? What do you want to do in my family? What do you want to see in my country? What do you want to do? God does not need our advice, nor does he need our assistance. Verse 35 of Romans chapter 11. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? What does that say? Who has given to him, given to God, that it might be paid back to him again? The idea is this, who loans something to God or gave something to God and now God is in that person's debt? Who is, who is God in debt to anybody? 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 Who, who has God under obligation to perform? I mean, who, is God an obligated to anybody to perform? You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. And this is a very important verse. God doesn't owe anybody anything. Anything. And in Job chapter 41 that, that uh, Paul quotes here, verse 11, the Lord says to Job, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. When did you, Job, or I or any other human being ever do to make God be in our debt? Nothing. Nothing. His favor is never, never owed to anybody. Never, ever, ever earned by anybody. Never, ever given as compensation back to God. So now we've hit on something that's very important we don't want to miss. With God, it's always infinite grace. Infinite grace. In fact, the truth is we owe God. We owe him an unpayable debt, don't we? There is no merit in us to put any constraint on God for anything. God is self-sufficient, he's sovereign, he's free from any obligation. He doesn't owe the Jew anything because of merit, and he doesn't owe the Gentile, owe the Gentile anything because of, of merit. And so you say, then why then is he going to fulfill his plan? 
If he doesn't owe us anything by promising us things, then why would he fulfill his plan? Doesn't he owe us something there at all? Why, why, why does God save us? Why does he redeem us? Why does he justify and sanctify us? Is, isn't there some kind of obligation there? Not at all. God does it because of his own character. He does it because he is sovereign God, he keeps his promises, and he's gracious. But don't for a moment imagine that you've got it all figured out. He's incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible. And the doxology concludes in verse 36 with the reason we are all dependent upon him. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Here we have the grand truth that lays the foundation of Christianity, the foundation of our faith. All things are of God. He is the author of everything. He is the source of all things. The statement affirms the sovereignty of God. Divine sovereignty means that God has complete control over all things. For from him means that everything flows from God. He is the beginning of all things. He is the alpha. God is the first cause, the effective cause, the final cause of everything. He is the supreme purpose of all things. Nothing is excluded, and to him are all things. He is the goal of all things, not only the alpha, but he is the omega. The alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. All things come from him, and by means of him, all are for him and his glory. Man is absolutely dependent on God, for God is the source, the means, and the end of all. If all things come from God and have their life, their existence through him, and all things end in him, what is left to say? To him be the glory forever. Amen. We stand in awe before our gracious God and rejoice that from him and through him and in him are all things. And since all things are from him and through him and to him, the glory's got to be his alone. And so with the 24 elders, we fall down before him who sits on the throne and we worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne and we proclaim, worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things. And because of thy pleasure, they existed and were created. Amen and amen. Shall we pray? Father, as we have been in your glorious presence this morning, as we have looked and studied your word, and it's been all about you, Father. Father, I pray that we will go from this place this morning knowing that we have been in the presence of the living God, that all things are from you and through you and to you, Lord. And Father, because of your character, your mercy, your grace, Father, you have chosen us before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I believe it. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name.
Amen.